Welcome to today's episode of The Heart Cheaper. I'm your host, Boots Knighton, and today I'm honored to have Jeff Holden with us to share his story. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Boots. I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you, and I'm happy you're here as well. And we have an exciting episode today. Jeff is going to dive into his story. It's a very hope-filled story. And Jeff, tell us where you are from. I'm a Chicago native. I grew up in Chicago and moved to Texas in my 30s and then moved to California. Texas was a short-lived stint and then got transferred to California. And I've been here ever since, almost 37 years now. Okay. Where exactly in California? Sacramento. Okay. So we're a little bit north central. We're in the valley. And it's uh, it's just a wonderful community, very family-oriented, very similar to where I grew up in Chicago with a lot of residents who have been both born and stayed or born and came back after school to raise their families, start their, their businesses, whatever it may be. That's great. And I bet that has played into your recovery. Well, not only my recovery, but my access to great health care. Mm-hmm. And the ability to exercise. I mean, we've got mountains and rivers and an ocean and San Francisco one way, Napa the other, and the Sierra Tahoe region to the east. So there's nothing you can't do here most of the year. That's great. You're very lucky. Jeff, what gets you up in the morning? The ability to do something for others. And post-surgery, it's a celebration that we're still here. Yeah, seriously. Well, tell us about your surgery. Jeff has quite the story. Why don't you walk us through what led you to the knowledge that something was even wrong with your heart? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great story. <laughs> uh, I'm a cyclist is is probably my sport of choice. And I was training in July of 2021 for a ride in the Sierras, which is a, a pretty grueling ride. It's called the Death Ride. Uh, coincidentally, and I'm in great shape. The ride's supposed to take place late July. We get up there and fires happen. And for those of you from the California or uh, Western states, the Markleyville fire was the one that started and we could see the smoke. And this is literally the day of the ride. And they said, we have to call it off, which that's roughly 2000 people. You train for a year for the thing. It's, it, it's a lot of work. And it's just that big letdown and disappointment of an inability to fulfill something that you you know work so hard to to do. So I figure, okay, well, I've got a couple of other little things that I can do come into August. But in August, I every time I would go out for a ride, I'd have this sensation in my chest that was not right and had no idea what it was. Certainly could not be anything with my heart because I'm in great shape. And, you know, I'm trained up, I'm ready to go, and everything's fine. And Jeff, how old were you at the time? 64 at the time, Okay. 66 currently, and 65 when I had my surgery. Okay. So we go and I'd go off for a ride and the sensation would start and it'd be a deep burning sensation in the center of my chest. Not anything I would expect a heart condition to feel like, but it was severe enough that it would, you know, get your attention. Then of course, (laughs) being ignorant, you just ride through it and everything be fine. And you'd go out and do another 40, 50, 60, whatever number of miles it was that day. And okay, that's, that's good. Go out again the next time and it happened again. And I noticed, oh, that's a little, that seems like it lasted a little bit longer. One more time, I'm a slow learner and it, it lasted even a little bit longer. 
So I'm aware of it, but it was only in the start of a ride. And I thought exertion would cause the symptom of anything with the heart after the fact, not early in the start of it. And I finally went for a ride one more time and it was about seven minutes long. And it was a really important ride because I was competing with a group of guys and it's, uh, it, it's a ride I do every year and I wanted to do well. And I remember coming back to the, the hotel, we were down in Carmel and I tell my wife, I'm so excited. It was the best ride I've ever had with the guys. And I'm older than everybody else there. So <laughs> I was really happy about it. For cyclists, I didn't get dropped. And I, you know, I, I had the sensation. I just pushed through it. And I was so proud of myself, right? Not knowing that that's about as dumb as you can be. But again, not thinking I had any sort of a situation. And then that night at the hotel, I felt it. It was like, okay, that's that sensation that I get when I ride. Didn't do much about it other than say, okay, I'll go to the doctor on Monday, which I did. And I go to my primary care physician and he goes, let's take an EKG and we'll get chest x-ray, make sure everything's okay. EKG was a little wonky, but nothing you know, extremely out of the ordinary, just an arrhythmia. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm not really concerned about that. Uh, let's get the chest x-ray. Chest x-ray didn't show anything other than some compression on the left ventricle just by my body type. And so I said, well, we want to get you into the cardiologist on Friday. Okay, that's that's fine. So this is Monday. It's Friday. On Thursday, about one o'clock in the morning, I have that sensation and it's it's not mild. It's pretty excruciating. And I wake up and I tell my wife, hey, this is it. This is that thing. And she goes, okay, well, you want me to rub your feet? And I said, no, it's not going to really make much of a difference. <laughs> I, I just got to, I'll just sit through it and let it get better. And it did. And it backed off. And then I laid down, went back to sleep at about 515, 530 in the morning. It woke me up again, only even more severe. And at that point, it was all the symptoms of a heart attack. It was nausea. It was sweating. It was excruciating pain. And at some point it just dropped me to my knees. And I just, I just sat there. Um, you know, on my knees, just, you know, holding my chest, you know, arms crossed, just going, just, this has to stop. I mean, I, I'm calling 911, which I did. They show up, they wire me up with the leads, pulse, you know, the whole nine yards. And the dude goes, you're having a heart attack, man. And I'm like, I think <laughs> I know that. <laughs> now, by then the situation, the episode of pain had subsided. And so I'm sitting on the couch, they're looking at everything. He goes, obviously we're going to get you to the hospital. Do you have a preference where you want to go? And I, I told him the, cl- the closest one was this Roseville Sutter Hospital. I, I go to get up because you can't get up. I said, what do you mean I can't get up? I, I'm, I'm okay right now. It's fine. It's stopped. It's all over. I'll walk out. He goes, you can't walk out. He goes, you're, you're getting on a gurney. We, this, you, there's no option. Wow. Of course. So I, I don't have an option. I have to get on the gurney in my own house. They wheel me out into the ambulance and off we go to the hospital. And I remember even the ambulance ride. And he's, he goes, your pulse is really low. I said, it's always really low. I said, I, I cycle. He goes, oh, I'm a cyclist. He goes, you're, you're 25 years older than me, though. What was your pulse? Uh, it was 46 or something. That's pretty low. Which is normal resting that's for me. Low. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Oh. And, but, and that's normal when I'm in good shape. Mm-hmm. So again, who's thinking anything's going on with your heart? He goes, man, that's really unusual. So I get to the hospital, and of course, they go do all the processes. We do the, uh, um, a CT and chest X-ray and... Uh, eventually we end up doing an angiogram, but everything's looking fine. They don't see anything. Echocardiogram, everything's fine. And they say, what well, the doc comes in and he goes, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably just something we're going to go in with a catheter. We'll take a look, do an angiogram. If you need a stint, we'll just take care of it. And I said, fine, great. 
And my wife is like, what are you doing? You only, we don't even know what's going on here. I said, well, I know something's going on. And if that's what they have to do, let's just do it. Mm-hmm. And there's no sense in waiting. And we go through the process. The doc comes in afterwards. He goes, uh, there's, there's nothing to stint. Everything's fine. And at that point, they hadn't seen anything. That didn't reveal that there was any sort of bridging because that's not what they were looking for. And they were really looking for blockage or occlusion. I don't have high cholesterol. I have great blood pressure. Everything's fine. A little bit of arrhythmia, but again, that wasn't of any significance. But what they did see as they were going through the battery of blood tests was elevated troponin, which is indicative of heart muscle damage. Mm-hmm. Hence, you had some sort of incident. You're you're still rising in terms of your troponin levels as you're in the hospital. So, you know, they're obviously aware that there's an issue here. And that, let me uh, interrupt you. Sorry, but when you were still at your house before they had rolled you out on the gurney. Um, did they find yeah. the heart, att- did they find the heart attack on the EKG? Yes. Okay. Yeah. He said, you're having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, okay. Which, it doesn't hurt anymore. But what was happening is obviously the, the blood flow had been impacted for some reason that we didn't know at that point in time. Right. And then what the next series of uh, experiences were, is they put me into cardiac rehab. They wanted to do some more tests because they really just didn't know what was happening. But I had, uh, I was experiencing you know, a fair number of PVCs, uh, preventricle contractions, uh, as well as PACs, but not as concerning for those of us who now know that everybody has the PACs all the time. The PVCs are ones we have to worry about. And I would go into these episodic periods of multiple PVCs. And I could almost predict when it would happen because I would have this chest pain. And they identified that chest pain over probably the first month or so, so now we're into September, as vasospasms, but why? And so they said, well, let's try some things. Let's put you on calcium channel blockers. That didn't work. Let's put you on beta blockers. That didn't work. We're going to give you nitro for when you feel it and try it. That didn't work. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd take the nitro and you know, they were, the episodes would last three to five minutes. By the time I'm taking the nitro and it's supposed to do something, the episode was already over. So and then you would just get a headache, probably. No, I didn't even get a headache. I oh. just went <laughs> on my day. It was bizarre. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen? What happened? The the real trigger in the, the the big part of the episode was I'm in cardiac rehab, so they would wire me up. I'd go to my thing. I'm bored to tears because I'm exercising on a level that's so below where I was, but I'm afraid to exercise hard because now I know there's a situation that we don't know what caused it, and. One of the days, the last cardio uh, rehab session I had was in late September. And I remember going through the process and it was a great day. I I dialed myself up a little bit more. They yelled at me and said, no, back it off. Hey, today was pretty good. No PVCs of any significance, just a couple here and there. I said, great. And I would always park upstairs in the garage at the, the top level so I'd get the exercise up the stairs. So I go up to the top of the, the, the garage, uh, get in my, go to get in my car, and I have one of those episodes again. And this one's excruciating. I mean, really, really bad. Not, n- not as bad as the heart attack, but the sensation. And I remember holding onto the rail of the you know, upper level of the garage, just looking out at the compound going, this has got to stop. And it subsides. At that time, I'm wearing a Holter monitor. I go home, I shower up, get ready, come into the office. I'm sitting at the, the office and the doctor calls me. My cardiologist calls and he goes, where are you? I, I said, I'm at, I'm at my desk. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm working. He goes, did you pass out? I said, no, I don't know what, what's the matter. He goes, 
you just had a ventricular tachycardia episode. He goes, you need to get to the hospital right now. And it was the same chain of hospitals, but a diff different location where the uh, electrophysiologist was. He goes, we got to see what's going on. I said, okay, let me finish up. He goes, no, no, you need to do this right now. I said, okay, I'll, I'll head down there right now. He goes, no, <laughs> you're not heading down there. Somebody's driving you down there. And I could tell in his voice, something really serious happened that he saw. Mm -hmm. And, you know, post the, to date, I've since talked to him at length about it. And what they saw was ventricular tachycardia, which can go to ventricular fibrillation, which will kill you. Yeah. And he said, so evidently your, your spasm episodes trigger VT. And fortunately for you, this wasn't sustained. It was, you know, it was non-sustained, but your heart rate was up around 220, 230 something. Wow. And he goes, that's, that's, you know, that gets everybody's attention. So the monitor triggered it. They called the doctor, he called me and, and next thing you know, I'm in the hospital again. And I was there for a couple of days. And what the process was, we went through a cardiac MRI, which showed nothing, uh, nothing out of the ordinary. They did another, uh, another CT, another echocardiogram. And the EP, the electrophysiologist came in and said, I don't know what's wrong with you. I mean, we don't see enough of anything that would indicate that there's an issue. We know there is an issue because we can tell by your symptoms and something's triggering this VT mm -hmm. because the vasospasms won't always show up on an EKG. Yep. You don't see them necessarily. Sometimes they can, sometimes they don't. Mine didn't. And so I'm in the hospital at length and they're trying to figure this out and I'm, I'm working from hospital. Everything's I'm fine, relatively speaking. But as they went through the process, he, he mentions, and, and you know, you have this thing, it's a myocardial bridge, it's benign, it doesn't really cause any problems. And he said, that's not an issue. And I said, what, what, wait, what is this thing? It's what, what's this myocardial bridge? I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about. He goes, well, it's where your coronary artery, in your case, it's the LAD left anterior descending, the widowmaker artery, it passes through your heart instead of over it. And I said, what well, doesn't sound good to me? He goes, nah, it's nothing. Many people have it and it's not a condition that we're concerned about. And I'm like, well, why don't we just go in and bypass it and make it go around the heart instead of through the heart? Maybe that is it. And I, I will never forget his look as he looks at me. We don't do that. That would be so dangerous to attempt to do that. And why would we when we don't think it causes any, any symptoms? And wow. to me, just mechanically, that seemed to make sense. If you got something that may not be working, but he said, it's working fine. That's not an issue. So another day goes by and the team, the cardiac team comes in and including my cardiologist who says, this guy has very, very good sense about his health. He's very self-aware. He's having episodes of something that we can see and we can diagnose as the ventricular tachycardia. The fact that we don't know why means we have to figure out what is causing the symptoms. So at that point, they say, it's beyond us. We need to have you go through some sort of provocative testing, which in Sacramento, uh, you know, the skill set, the experience and the chemicals just aren't available. And I, I applaud all of them for saying it's, it's beyond us. We've got to go somewhere else to mm -hmm. get this rectified or at least identified. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys says, I know somebody at Stanford. Another guy says, I know somebody at Mayo. And then the other option was Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland Clinic because they were aware of the provocative testing being done there. And I, I said, well, Stanford's closest. It's right in our backyard. It's only two hours away. So let's start the process to get into Stanford, which we did. And through a variety of different episodes of good fortune, I ended up uh, being accepted to Stanford for the provocative testing. And it's Dr. Tremel, uh, 
so so fortunate to have you know one of the best in the industry mm-hmm. she did mine too she's amazing yeah isn't she mm-hmm. uh, so we go in and i'm going through the process and at one point i remember saying to her i i feel that sensation and i think if i'm feeling it you've got to be seeing it because i know i'm all numbed up and i've got enough drugs in me that i shouldn't be feeling anything but i am and she says yes we see it you were having severe vasospasms and so they backed it off at that point um, with the nitroglycerin. And then we did the, the stress test as well with the dobutamine. And the effect of all of that afterwards was uh, severe vasospasms, yes, relatively long myocardial bridge at 40 millimeters. And then the other thing she said is there's a blockage that when you spasm and the heart is squeezing, you're almost 98% occluded. And so depending on how long that spasm lasts would be the pain and what would cause, you know, the first time the heart attack. So fortunately that never had another heart attack after that episode, but then the diagnosis was, and she diagnosed it right there. She goes, you need to have, you know, coronary artery bypass graft or cabbage procedure and, and a myocardial bridge unroofing. And I said, okay, let's go. What, <laughs> what do we do now? Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a very short period of time that it took to get into the hospital and my surgery was January 4th, 2022. And it really wasn't much of a decision. I had the opportunity to sit and talk with the surgeon who was Dr. Jack Boyd. And I do recall sitting with him and go, okay, so, so Dr. Boyd, I'm coming in. You're literally going to open me up and cut my heart. And he goes, yes. And I said, how many times have you done this before? He goes around 200. This is over the course of 10 years. And I said, what's the experience in terms of my options? And he goes, well, there's very few people who do this. And I said, well, where do you rank? (laughs) You know, the people that do this, he goes, I've done more than anybody in the world. And I said, okay, comforting. And then the second question was how many people have made it out of the surgery? And he goes, every one of them. And I said, okay, but schedule me me up, you know, (laughs) when do we go? (laughs) Yep. And he did say there's other people who have come with comorbidities and obviously that that was just one of their issues and they may not have taken care of themselves post-surgery. They may not have done what they needed to do or other things got them, but nobody died on the table. And so that really put me at ease. And then we went through and we had our surgery on January 4th. Wow. And, you know, from what I have been reading on our myocardial bridge Facebook support group that I encourage any new listeners who have not found that yet, definitely ask to join the group if you have a myocardial bridge because the group is just such a treasure trove of support and love, but mostly information. And the stories we read about people like myself and others who had to wait a long time to finally have the unroofing procedure or are still waiting or can't, don't have access. Like Jeff, you have seen like the stuff, like you're so lucky it all happened as quickly as it did that I am sure it felt like time was going by at snail's pace. And I can only imagine, I found out about the group after the fact. And, you know, my purpose in joining was to say, there's hope. And not everybody's going to be a candidate for the surgery with a myocardial bridge. Right. But for the majority of people, they are. And for the majority of people, it will improve their symptoms and relieve some if they, everybody's different, everybody's unique. So we know that there's underlying conditions for everybody in, you know, each circumstance. 
but everybody that I know of that has had the condition that has been unroofed has seen improvement and sometimes back to full life. Whatever you did before, you're doing again. Right. Uh, I can say that's the case for me. Mm-hmm. I know your story has probably been told a number of times mm-hmm. and and how it's helped you. And there's a, a really interesting byline here that I'll share with you as well. As I'm going through the diagnostic process, I have a good friend who is a cardiac nurse at that same hospital. And she's talking with another cardiac nurse on the floor. And that person says, I know somebody that had that condition and had the surgery. And I'm like, really? Are you kidding me? I mean, there's not a lot of people that have had unroofing surgery in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And I ask if you would mind asking this person if they would be interested in talking to me. And it was begging, really. would, Would you please get me access to this person, but HIPAA laws and all that stuff, you have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. So she reaches out to the person. It turns out to be a woman who is in a marathon runner and a little bit younger than I am. She's 42 years old. She lives about 15 minutes from me. What are the chances? And we are... connect. Uh, it, it's, it's fortuitous, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't either. And, you know, we, we connect and we spend a couple of hours talking and she had her surgery right about the time that I had my, my heart attack. So she was done in August and she was about six to eight months in and just telling me it's, it's so improved. She's now jogging, she's getting out, she's doing everything. And she has since now, maybe a year and a half, almost two years in run a marathon again. So not at pace, not as fast as she used to be, but that's still good enough. And right. You know, it, it, it's just one of those situations where a lot of things aligned. And I say that as alignment with that Facebook group, because you just don't know who's in there, who's got a situation that maybe you can help with. Mm-hmm. And we met through that Facebook group. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw me on, on some post or I responded to one of your posts. Mm-hmm. And I apologize to everybody in the Facebook group. I just can't get to it as often as I'd like to, because I see so many similarities to say, oh yeah, that, no, no, here's what you do for that. And no, tell your cardiologist this. And I know one of the things you asked in the very beginning of the podcast is what do you get up in the morning for? And and part of it is to be able to share this story with people. You don't wear it on your sleeve when you walk around, you introduce yourself and say, hey, I had a mitochondrial bridge unroofed and I'm here to talk about it. But for those who you know have a situation, if we can help them, you know, and give them hope and say, yes, this does improve. Yes, there are things you can do. You just have to find the right channel, the right path, the right people. And you have to be your own best advocate, as I'm sure you found as well. That was, I would say that's the biggest part of the job. Like I treated it as a job for a while. It's like operation saved my life. And I found yes. that the advocacy was way harder than the surgery. So speaking of your surgery, you obviously had a very, very good outcome. Tell us, what did you do to recover? Well, I, let me address first the into surgery. So the thing I didn't realize somewhere along the line, somebody forgot to tell me that the day before surgery, when you're going in, we, we had these catheters put down my back. It's a, a procedure. I don't know if everybody has that now, but it, it relatively new, where it numbs the, you know, the sternum area where they're going to cut and all that stuff. Well, I'm, I'm in the waiting room to go in there and I'm eating a sandwich. And they go, no, 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 you're supposed to go 
under. I said, I go under. I've been, I've been eating all day. Nobody told me I was supposed to go under. How did I miss this? This <laughs> is an it's a fully anesthetized proce- procedure in the prep. I'm like, I, you know, I didn't know. <clears throat> and they said, well, we're going to have to do it with a local. I'm like, wait a minute. This is something you do typically with a full anesthesia and you're going to do it with a local for me? Well, we have to do it. And I'm like, oh, this doesn't sound good to me at all. So obviously out goes my sandwich and uh, we go in and they give me some shots, which is all they can do. And I'm thinking, this is not fun. And I, I just recall the catheterization process down you know, each side. And I had it, Stanford, obviously, a teaching hospital. So I had a resident in there and I hear her talking to the doctor and the doctor is explaining, oh, no, no, just push a little harder here. And I'm like, you know, I feel all these pushes, you guys, and where you're you know, putting the, uh, the guide down for the catheter. And I, I, it's just, it was just a series of silly little stories that occurred. No, no fault of theirs. Certainly, I just missed something somewhere along the line. And so that was, that was the first one. But as I'm being prepped and ready to get wheeled in, uh, a lot of friends were aware of the condition and the situation and the surgery. And I've got some friends who are also docs and friends who are pharmaceutical reps, et cetera. And you know, just that, that global awareness of people knowing that something's going on, who are praying for you, who are thinking positively for you, or sending you good energy, and it was palpable. I'm a faith-based guy, but I don't know that I would ever have said that I would notice it. But as I was going into surgery, it was amazing. And obviously this is all COVID time too. So, you know, I couldn't have anybody around. My wife was in, you know, another room and uh, nobody but the surgeons and the uh, the care team. But it was something I could, I, I've never experienced before. And again, it was it was palpable. It's real. And I've heard people talk about it, but I, I can't say I've ever felt it. But going into surgery, I did. And I wasn't concerned. It really was amazing. Where I've talked with a lot of people, even minor surgeries. Oh, I'm scared to death. And I, I said, you must have been just a wreck. I'm like, I wasn't even worried. You know, the, the anxiety level was low. And I just had that much confidence that whatever happened was what was meant to be. But I had everybody with me going in. And again, I share that. As, as much as I can as well, because there's a lot of people go, oh, I, you know, I'm praying and nothing's happening. Keep praying and, you know, and, and continue that support from friends and family and you know, whomever can, can support you in the process, because mm-hmm. it was so real for me. Wow. And so you've had a really good recovery. I did. Yeah, the procedure went fairly well. I don't think there were any complications, uh, according to the doctor. I was maybe 50, 45 minutes, 55 minutes, somewhere like that in the, uh, uh, on the heart-lung machine. And then the rest was, was recovery, which that was a little bit rough, as I'm sure everybody will attest to. It just depends on your particular situation. But uh, I did not really dig, you know, ICU at all. And I hadn't slept for almost 72 hours in the process. And a lot of the nurses down there are traveling nurses. So it wasn't people that had familiar with the area, we couldn't talk about the geography, but they were wonderful people. It's just that it's a, it's a process. You know, that was, uh, it was the sleep thing. The sleep deprivation is what got me more than anything. It wasn't so much the pain and, and all that. It was just getting through trying to sleep and not because of noise or anything else. I think it was everything. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, the surgery, the complications, the drugs, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, your body had just kind of been assaulted. You'd been in a knife fight, Mildly. as my surgeon called it. 
<laughs> yeah, right. So the body's like, wait a minute, what happened here? <laughs> exactly. I remember one of the ICU nurses coming and said, Jeff, don't worry about anything. I've got, I have everything for you. you. You don't have to do anything. And I looked at him, I said, you know what? I'm going to do everything. I don't want you to do anything. I don't want anybody taking anything away from me. I've got it. You just keep an eye on what I'm doing. Because at that point, you know, you're doing your breathing exercises and you know, a little bit of movement and the stuff that you're doing. And that was probably the only time I remember being really rude to somebody. It was the guy irritated me. It's like, no, you don't have me. I got me. <laughs> I don't need anybody to do anything for me. I'll figure it out. I need to learn what's going to happen here and I need to experience it myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in fact, everything worked out fine. And movement is medicine. Yeah. My, my ICU nurses got me out of the bed as soon as they could. I think it was within right. two hours of me kind of waking up. I threw up all over the floor, but. <laughs> oh, that's no fun after a sternotomy. No, no, uh, no. I, I actually broke the ICU record for the number of times. Um, I vomited 25 times in a 24-hour period in the ICU, which was their record at the time. I don't know if it's been broken since. Ugh. Not a record I'm proud of. <laughs> yeah, after a sternotomy, don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, we got uh, we got home. I was in in recovery for four days and begging to get out. And they said, "Okay, we'll let you go." I get home, and unfortunately, my wife gets sick as soon as we get home. And and she's she was wonderful, wonderful, and and has been is I, I love her to death. But she she just held herself together because of all the activity. And it literally, as soon as we get home, she's out. She's like, "I got to lay down. I got I can't." function. I said, I got it. Don't worry. I'm fine. And I remember going down and doing the dishes and taking them out of the dishwasher and thinking, okay, I, I'm feeling pretty good. And it was maybe a week and a half later, we, we had a little situation just with the, the surgery. Again, nothing of any significance. And I had to run down to the ER at Stanford and everything's fine. They, they fixed what the issue was and <laughs> get home and I get COVID. I get COVID. It's like, this can't happen. <laughs> so everybody that has had the sternotomy, you think two weeks out of it, and all you have is a chest cold that you're coughing, 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 and you're supposed to be out walking. And so I, you know, I did, you know, just kept walking through it and uh, everything worked out fine. But as you're going through it, the first thing you're thinking about, I'm going to cough these staples apart. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm just going to rip this whole thing apart. It's going to be a disaster. It's going to be surgery again. And, you know, the good news is these guys know what they're doing. And that typically isn't the case. I took that pillow with me, that little heart pillow that I'm sure everybody gets. Uh -huh. And I had it with me for two months. It never left my side. It came to the office. It went the car on my walks. It just, it was there. Yeah. That pillow is really helpful. I still have mine. I still have mine. <laughs> yeah. I've, that's a very expensive pillow. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> uh, but I'll take that pillow uh, over the symptoms every day of the week. Amen. I mean, I'd say it's expensive because, I mean, it actually is. And it's worth every penny. Yes. What surprised you the most about this entire experience? The body's ability to recover. And as a, an, an athlete of some sort, you get used to things, you know, knees and feet and arms and shoulders and all that, and everything fixes itself. But to think that the organs of this significance can be touched by people outside of your body is beyond my comprehension. 
and the ability for those people in the medical field to have so well diagnosed, so well researched, and and so well practiced to know that they can do this and literally save a life is, I think, what I found the most amazing. That's beautiful. What's been the most helpful thing for you throughout this, and what's been the least helpful for our audience? The the most helpful have been the circle of friends, you know, friends and family. You can't begin to applaud them enough for the support that they gave me in, in emotional, in food. I mean, I lost 20 pounds in the whole process. That was the most fun part was putting it back on because I just got to eat like a pig. <laughs> and once I was cleared to exercise, it was, it was great. I just eat and exercise and, you know, work. And it was, it was a lot of fun, but they were there for me every step of the way. And whether it was a phone call or an email or a text, depending on where they might have been, just knowing that I had this cadre of people and family and, and an incredible spouse who were there. I mean, I, I would look at the at my wife so many times and think, I know how I'm feeling. I know I'm going to be fine, but I could see it in her eyes. She doesn't. And I can only imagine what that must look like when your spouse or significant other is going through this where it's life-threatening and you go through your process of let's make sure everything's in order. Let's make sure all the books are good. The house is taken care of. All the bills are aware of where everything is, what the financial situation looks like, all the passwords. By the way, if you haven't done that, and I don't mean you, but I mean you, everybody listening, mm -hmm. you need to do it yeah. because you don't know at what point anything could happen. You don't want to leave anybody in that situation. Mm -hmm. So advice. we have done all that. And I can't imagine what that looks like on the other end. You know, you're looking at your significant other or spouse who may not be with you and you know it and they're telling you it and trying to convince you everything's going to be okay if that's the situation. So that with the family, the kids, we have four children and, and the ability to have addressed that and them to have gone through it with me, I think that for me was one of the most uh, supportive elements of all of it. And then the, the downside, I don't, the fact that I'm here and able to continue to do what I do, obviously, is I think that goes without saying in, in terms of grace and gratitude and humility and appreciation, you know, thank God, thank the doctors, thank the medical profession. That just is a, a big part of it as well. But you, you, the negative side of the downside, I, I can't really say I recall, I mean, there wasn't a point where I ever felt, you know, woe was me. It was always, mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to be doing to the degree that I'm supposed to be doing it. And I would ask a lot of questions. Again, advocate for yourself, because if you don't know something, you, you got to find it. And you can find it through the Facebook group. You can find it through a lot of research online. You know, the docs are busy. They may give you the information in a cursory way, but until you experience it and it's different for everybody, you have to learn how, how it manifests for you. And I would say I was probably pretty aggressive in, in the process, but I was in great shape going in. So I was still in pretty good shape coming out. I know a lot of people who have the condition have had it for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're not in as good a shape. And there are other underlying conditions that could make their situation different. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was literally, I'm good. I'm not good. I might die. I have to get this fixed, get it fixed, and I'm good. 
the sequence of events is just miraculous to me. It's it's just miraculous. Yeah, it's it's a miraculous story. To a little bit of that discussion we had earlier, that didn't happen for me to go back and do everything I've been doing the same way I've been doing it. There's a, there's a reason that that happened the way it happened, and it's given me the ability to now share the story and infuse myself into other situations where I can help people who are suffering the condition understand that there's hope. And thank you for being willing to do that because you could just go back to living your life. Right. Differently than I did. <laughs> I am not an empathic person by nature, haven't been. Um, I had an incident in the hospital and this is probably a whole nother episode, but I'll give you just the, the cursory high level of it is, I, and, and I talked with several people who have had either near-death experiences and or heart-lung time off, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I, I like to think I gained an hour of life. <laughs> yeah, I get an extra hour because they took me off of an hour. I didn't burn up an hour. But in that recovery process, somewhere along the line, there was this incredible, I'm, I'm going to call it a dream because I don't know what else to call it. But it was a very, very deep experience, emotional experience for me that made me recognize the suffering of so many other people. And I don't mean just physical ailments, but I mean mental illness, mental health, homelessness, drug addiction. And when I came out of that episode, which when I was in it, was not sure I was going to. In the experience I had, I'm in this. I'm experiencing what these things must feel like to the best of my ability, not having really gone through them and feeling captured and caught in a way that I have got to bust out of this because I can't do anything in it. And if I don't come out of it, I die. I mean, that's how it sensed to me in the process. And in the clock time, it seemed like it was something in the neighborhood of four hours. I, I don't know that it really was, but I know what the time was when I started this episode, which I'll call maybe some, some deep sleep or something, till the time I came out of it. And when I burst through it, it was this epiphany of, you have to do something. These people have issues. You can't just look at them as, it's their problem. It's, there's more to it. And that part changed my life. I remember I woke up when, when I opened my eyes, the sun was coming up. It was a glorious, spectacular, beautiful day. And I, I, I started crying, obviously, just going, ah, okay, something happened here. I get it. My wife comes in. I'm a mess. I'm you know, crying all over her. And I said, I'm here for a reason. There's, I have to figure this out right now. And a friend of mine said, you know, there's, there's the two best days of your life is the first one is the day you're born. And the second one is when you find out why. I haven't figured out to find out why completely yet, but I'm a whole lot closer than I ever would have been had this not happened. So that having spoken now to other people, they've had similar situations, not necessarily the same, but yeah, I had this really crazy dreamlike state of whatever. So I'm going to ask you, since we're talking about it, did you? Oh, often, but I'm empathic. I'm also intuitive and I feel like my heart surgery almost turned me into a barometer. In fact, there's a few people in my life that just call me their barometer friend. And mm -hmm. the, the surgery only sharpened my empathic abilities and intuitive abilities. Almost, it's almost problematic. Like I am having to work on not picking up everyone's energy when I go 
out of my house. Understood. And there's quite a few people who report that after heart surgery. And if you think about it, I mean, we are literally filleted open and we are laying there unable to protect ourselves. And we're surrounded by people and their energies in the room. And then while we're recovering, we're surrounded, we're exposed to everyone else's energies coming in and out of the ICU and the PCU during our most vulnerable time of our life, more than likely, except for when we're a baby. And so it's no wonder that we pick up energy, we sense things. It's just a normal process for an energetic being. I'm a year ahead of you in my recovery, and I have found at the time of this recording with you and I, you know, I'm almost two, two years out, and it has taken me about this long to really make sense of everything that happened. It's just such a like monumental event in our life to have our chest cut open and our hearts literally touched. You know, you think you hear people say, and like, um, what's the language I'm thinking of? But, you know, they'll say, you know, oh, you touched my heart with that story or, oh, look how cute they are. That touches my heart. Right. We talk about it in like this ethereal, ethereal way. But like, like, no, our hearts were actually physically handled. Turned off and handled. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because I, too, was put on the heart lung machine. And for me, I also had the not LAD, but my LCX. And so uh, I had multiple places in my heart cut into so it, it's not just a simple bypass surgery like a lot of people have in this day and age, you know, like it's a different deal. And I think if it didn't change someone, you know, the way you're explaining and how I felt, then I don't think the person's really paying attention. And I, Jeff, I, I really feel like they missed the opportunity. Right. I think the other thing that's so, so important is keep your sense of humor. It's hard when you hurt. It's it's hard when you're scared, but work to keep it. And, and I can't tell you, I, I did everything I could to tease the nurses, even in ICU, as, as miserable as I was, I would find as I was recovering, I, I got better as the pain got less, uh, you know, to just work. They are doing everything they can. And there are comedic moments in all of this. And if you can find them, I think it eases the burden a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm sure many of you who have been unroofed, certainly me, there's a survivor guilt here. And when you think of that purpose element, you go, why am I here? Why me? There's people who are much more significant in their community contribution, in their global enterprise, whatever it may be, who didn't get this opportunity. And then here's little old me you know, a guy in Sacramento who goes through what is a pretty contemporary and progressive process right now where the majority of cardiologists don't even accept it as a condition. So the fact that you're here, I'm here, those of us who have been unroofed are here, it, it's, it's beyond blessing. It's, there's, there's a purpose and a reason, and I do think it's incumbent on us to do something with that. And as we wind uh, wind up our time together here, you are going to host your own podcast, correct? I am. I am. But we're a podcast studio. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And we make podcasts. And I'm thinking, 
all my life I've been in communications. I ran radio stations for 35 years. And when I left the broadcasting business, I got into the podcasting business. It, it didn't look like that 10 years ago, but it's what it's become. And it's pretty exciting to see the progression of that business as well. But this is what I do. And it's like, how can what happened for me not become something that I can help people with when I have the ability to communicate it? And I have good fortune and access because of the positions I've held in the community that I can get to people where they'll come into the studio or they'll share their story through you know, technology like we're doing. And I have to do it. It just, you know, I think not unlike yourself, we're in the process right now of crafting ours. We just had the first interview with my cardiologist yesterday. So we're putting together the episodes. We'll launch in January sometime. Mm -hmm. No, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, the podcast name is Imperfect Heart. Beautiful. And I applaud you too, because well, you're not an experienced podcaster or broadcaster, but you took the initiative to say, I need to help. And I think I can. And obviously we'll all come from a different perspective. It just that much more information to inform, educate, entertain those who are either going through the process of identification and diagnosis, those who are coming through the surgery. And I think equally as important is to hear those stories in the medical community for the doctors and the cardiologists who maybe don't quite accept that this is reality, that the myocardial bridge is causing and creating symptoms in many different situations. And I even believe as I investigated and talked a lot more that myocardial bridging may be ignored in some situations where people have died and it just looks like, you know, sudden cardiac arrest because of a blockage. The blockage is the artery going into the heart, mm -hmm. but it's not going to look like that if you don't know you have a bridge. So I think we're going to find and learn a lot in the next you know few years as the process gets mastered and people really are able to better uh, diagnose it. Mm -hmm. And through your podcast, through mine, through the Facebook support group, hopefully we can quicken that process to save lives and improve lives. Wouldn't that be cool? Totally agree. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And audience, please check out the episode notes for ways to get in touch with Jeff Holden. Also to find his podcast, The Imperfect Heart. Thanks so much for your time today. So, so appreciative, Boots. Congratulations. And I look forward to many, many more episodes. Thank you. And that's the show for today. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. The Heart Chamber exists because of you. If you find value in this podcast, consider donating to this cause. Go to theheartchamberpodcast.com and go to the donate link. And hey, while you're there, feel free to leave me a voicemail. I want to hear from you. Lastly, don't forget to leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you never miss another Tuesday edition of The Heart Chamber. Thanks again. Have a great week. And I'll be back next week with more stories of open heart surgery and recovery.